Okay, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as we begin the study of the condemnation of the moralist. The condemnation of the moralist. In verses 1 through 3, discuss the concept that the moralist condemns himself. The moralist condemns himself. And you'll please forgive me, I haven't adopted, adapted my vocabulary to, to the new... Uh, political correctness of gender-neutral terms, so uh, please understand that just because I say the moralist condemns himself, it also means herself. Men and women are both condemned by this, if you'll uh, forgive me for my archaic terminology. What I'd like to do, since chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 is one unit, I'd like to read through it in English and just read along with me. Uh, Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So you see, I hope you see in that casual reading, there is a lot in these 16 verses, a lot of very serious theology. By way of background, we're looking at the condemnation of the world, the universal need for righteousness. And you see that in the, in the outline that I handed out to you tonight that runs from verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. Now we've, for the last few weeks, been looking at the condemnation of the righteous in verse 18 through, verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1. We've also called this unrighteous person the immoral person, the immoral man, or the immoralist. Today, we begin to look at the condemnation of the moralist in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. In a few weeks, we'll get to the third major section of this portion of the book of Romans. That's the condemnation of the Jew in 2, 17 through 3, 8. And finally, the condemnation of the whole world in summary, and that's Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Key verse being Romans 3, 9, which says, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all 
under sin. Now, in the chart that you have, and it's got a one-word title, Romans, on it, I want you to see where we are in the flow of the book. There was an introduction that ran through verse 17 of chapter 1, and actually verses 16 and 17 gave us the message statement of the book, which are the, I'm sorry, the purpose statement of the book. There's a slight difference. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Or the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And we've spent quite a bit of time discussing that particular translation and giving the justification for it. What I want you to see, and it's extremely important, because if you were paying close attention when we read verses 1 through 16, you might have noticed some potential theological problems there. Because it looked for all the world like, Paul is saying midway through this passage, that we're, we're going to get to go to heaven based upon our seeking for good. Well, Paul's, I want you to know before we ever get there, Paul has already established in this letter that salvation is by grace through faith. And he'll establish that again. So he's not going to change horses in the middle of the race and say that salvation is by works. We'll have to see what that means when we get there. But there's an introduction, and then there's a doctrine of justification. First, the need of it in one eighteen through 3.20. That's what we're studying now, and will be for several more weeks. In, in 3.21 through 5.21, we'll see what justification is. Particularly in chapter 4, there'll be two, exam- two, two big examples, one being Abraham, another one being David, of, of how one is justified, or examples of one persons in the Old Testament who are justified by grace through faith. And in, ver- in chapters 6 through 8, which is oftentimes called the experiential sanctification section of Romans, how it affects me. In verses chapters 9 through 11, which some people call a parenthesis, but it's why Israel rejected the justification by faith. Then starting in chapters 12 and following until the conclusion, we get the application of what Paul has taught us before, the application toward the assembly, toward the state, toward the weak and the strong. And finally, in chapter 15, verse 14 through 16, 27, there's a conclusion. But you can see where we are right now in the overall scope of this passage. We're still talking about the problem. Larry Morrier, who's a very fine evangelist, writes his salvation tracts in the books that he writes with a bad news, good news approach. And the place he got that is right straight here from Romans. Paul's doing the bad news, good news approach. He gets them lost. They have to understand they're lost before that they can accept Christ and be saved. Otherwise, if a person never understands they have a need, then, then to use the term salvation is, is really kind of nonsense. Sa- save me from what? You know, well, I've been saved. Well, saved from what? You, you understand where I'm coming from? So that's what Paul's doing here. He's making sure we understand that the immoral person needs a Savior. Everybody amens that. Then he'll, but now what we start tonight is a bit more difficult. The moral person, the good person, needs a Savior. And finally, he'll tell us that the Jew needs a Savior as well. Another thing that's going to come out in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, is that God is going to judge everyone fairly. Today, justice is not always fair. I mean, talk to anyone who's in school, high school, college, and they'll tell you how that, that test wasn't fair or this test wasn't fair. If you're in business, this customer wasn't fair, that person wasn't fair to me. Um, you, you may not get a fair shake now, but, but God's always fair. In his own timing, 
God's going to judge everyone fairly. Now, the moralist, let me give you a clue as to what his problem is going to be. The moralist is probably not undergoing any judgment right now, and they misinterpret that for everything being okay in their life. And that's a big problem. God is going to judge them, and he's going to judge them fairly, and the wrath of God's going to come down on them in his own time. And Paul's going to say the reason that God's holding back is so that you'll repent, that you'll change your mind about Jesus Christ and come to him. But don't assume, just because there's no judgment in your life right now, that everything is hunky-dory. God is very patient. We already studied that man suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God in, in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32 which led to idolatry, which led to immorality, which finally resulted in hatred of God or animosity toward God. And this is not a progression in innocence. This is extremely important for the cultural discussion today. This is not a progression in innocence. This, the argument about what, what about those people who have never heard is an argument that's overdone. Because Paul says, if you have any kind of normal intellect, and we've, we made the, exce- the exceptions to the rules, we outlined them when we studied this, there are exceptions to the rules, and that is, those are the folks that were born or at a young age had an accident or something where they don't have a normal intellect. But everyone else is not innocent. There's, uh, so this isn't just a progression of innocence that takes place from uh, suppression to idolatry to immorality to animosity. Remember, there's suppression first. The knowledge comes first, and they set it aside. It's a rebellion against the Creator. It's not for lack of knowledge or lack of an opportunity. That's one of the arguments that Paul makes here. Now, here, listen. There are there are times when in our souls we want to disagree with Paul. And we want to say, well, what about that person or these people in there? God's in there. What about the American Indians and, you know, in a time before the, the Europeans came over here? You know, surely that's very unfair for God to do this or that or the other thing. Don't accuse God of unfairness with the partial and limited knowledge that we have. You don't know what he's done for different people. And we shortchange God all the time. So I would rather go with what Paul says. And he says twice now, he's going to say in this passage, he's already said it, now, earlier in, in verse 20, and he's going to say it again in, in chapter 2, verse 1, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. So uh, if Paul says they're without excuse, then let's don't us give them an excuse that God doesn't give them. So let's be very careful. Now, after running through the list of sin and debauchery and evil and just wickedness and this filthiness and dirtiness that we have seen in verses up to verse 32... It's easy for us to amen Paul. It's easy for Paul's reader to amen Paul. It's easy for the world to amen Paul. Say, yes, Paul, those people need to go straight to hell. They deserve condemnation. No one that is going to, no one's going to argue that the immoral person doesn't need justification. And hopefully, as we've studied this, you haven't identified too closely with the people that we've already studied. Of course, it's always a possibility. But hopefully you didn't identify them, but I guess you're going to identify in a, in a uh, retrospective way, I mean, because I assume all of you are believers here tonight. But you'll identify it with this section uh, very intimately, actually. Most of you will. This is going to hit a little closer to home. And I do know that I'm speaking to those who have already been justified by grace through faith. If there's anybody that's not, you, you've been fooling me. Uh, please feel free to talk to me, and uh, please do. And I'll make myself available to you any place, any time, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, if you've just been playing a game. 
and just coming because somebody else wants you to come or because you think this is going to get you some brownie points with God. It's not. So if you've never trusted Christ, then let's talk. But, but I wonder, even though this, this may not apply to us now, but looking back in retrospection, there's a huge application to this passage for us. And I want to give it to you up front instead of waiting till the end. I wonder how many of us, while not identifying with the immoral person, think like the moral person does in Paul's argument. That, you know, before I came to Christ, I wasn't quite as bad as they were. So when Christ died for me, he didn't have to do quite as much work as he did for them. And you know what? Since I wasn't that bad of a person, God probably wanted me into heaven just a little bit more. You know, we would never verbalize, because we would be too humble to verbalize that in that way. But in other ways, we do verbalize it. Because we have this, just like the, Paul's audience, we have a hierarchy. And we say, well, if someone murders and commits adultery, actually, we put them down here, they're the lowest, you know, they're, they're, they're dirt bags. And I'm better than them. And if I just do things that shadow that, and have everybody else think I'm a good guy, then maybe I didn't need, I know I needed it, but I sure couldn't have needed it as much as them. And you miss grace. You miss the beauty of grace when you do that. Paul understood grace perhaps better than anybody of his age. I'm not saying better than anybody of any age. I don't know. But I think he understood it as good as, or better than anybody of his time. Because Paul himself was one of the immoralists, although he probably thought of himself in the moral category, even though he was a murderer. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So you may identify with it in that way. The moralist in this passage would attempt to absolve himself of the guilt associated with the immoralist. Now, he hasn't sunk into the gutter like the immoralist has, so he must be okay with God, he would allege. In fact, if the immoralist would behave just like me, he would say, then everything would be okay with the immoralist. And that's half or more of the people in the world that call themselves Christian. It may be more than half. They think that they're going to get to heaven by being the moralist, not realizing that they have every bit of as much of a need as the ones that they condemn. Now, Paul says in this passage, too, in verses 1 through 16, that we will be judged according to three principles of divine judgment. First, according to reality, uh, verses 1 through 5, which we'll cover part of that tonight. Second, according to works, which is going to need a lot of explanation in verses 6 through 11. And third, according to obedience, that's verses 12 through 16. Now, in the second section, the condemnation of the moralist, there is some discussion as to who Paul's referring to amongst New Testament scholars. Is it a Jew or a Gentile that he's referring to? Well, my view is that he's speaking primarily to a Gentile moralist, although for the Jew, Paul could say, if the shoe fits, go ahead and wear it. But the condemnation of the Jew specifically doesn't come into play until chapter 2, verse 17. So this is a moralist. Whether Jew or Gentile is not Paul's primary point, but I would lean toward Gentile because the Jew is a, a moralist as well, and he's going to separate them into another category. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. He begins the passage with the word, therefore, dio, D-I-O in the Greek, looks back not just to verse 32, 
Verse, that's what our first tendency would be. Would be just to look at the, the one verse before that. Although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, well, actually, Paul's doing more than that. This therefore goes all the way back, not to verse 32, but to the beginning of the previous section. and goes back to verse 18. So the therefore, that's what Paul's going to discuss in 2, 1 through 16, is all based upon what he's already discussed in 1, 18 through 32. I'll explain that as we go. All men, according to Paul, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All men and women, if you prefer, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The immoralist does, but here's Paul's point, the, the moralist does also, and so does the Jew. All people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, if I'm talking about those who choose to suppress the truth, they will do so in unrighteousness. And in, in chapter 1, verse 20, he says they're without excuse. But in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul returns to that same concept and declare, declares that the moralist is also without excuse because the moralist, it's not a problem of knowledge. It's a problem of rebellion. And the moralist, just like the immoralist, suppresses the truth. Chapter 1, verses I mean, chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, gives the results of being under the wrath of God. One eighteen through 23 probably covers everybody. But then in verses 24 through 32, there are specific results... And remember what those were. That it was suppression of the truth. Then it was idolatry, immorality, animosity. And this is, when people get into this league right here, and all those sins were mentioned, then the wrath of God is coming down on them. Probably both in time, but primarily in eternity. Now what's happened is, the people that are mentioned in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, missed these results. So, they assume that there is no wrath that they're under, and everybody's okay with it. God's okay with that. What Paul's going to say is, don't assume, because you remember there was three times that God gave them over, God gave them over, 24, 26, 28. Since that doesn't happen to the person that's the moralist, the moralist assumes everything's okay. Paul's going to say, it's not okay. Just because you missed out on this expression of the wrath of God doesn't mean you're going to miss out on the wrath of God altogether. So it gives them a false sense of security. And Paul's going to tell us instead of having a false sense of security, you should use that grace period on God's part to repent. So this is, this is another thing that's going on with the moralist. The moralist claims that because they were spared that path, they're not under judgment or wrath. Now, Paul says here, therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passage judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Remember when we first started this letter, I said this was written to believers. So what's the you business? If you're reading this carefully, you'd have to wonder, why is he saying you instead of they? Wouldn't you think he'd say, well, they did that. You know, every, every one of them that passage judgment, he doesn't do that. 
It's like he's pointing his finger right at somebody. Now, he's not pointing it at the audience, but he's pointing it at a category of people. Uh, he's using third, he's not using third person singulars like him or like he. Uh, he's using second person singulars, not he, but you. But it doesn't mean he's speaking to unbelievers. This is a classic use of Hellenistic diatribe. This is a, a, a technique that speakers in Paul's day would use to make a point. And what it tells us is that Paul's getting a little worked up as he writes this. You might wonder why. Why wasn't he worked up about the immoralist? I mean, he certainly laid it all out, didn't he? The immoralist. I mean, he told it like it was. But here is where Paul seems to, and we can tell by the, the way he uses this particular Greek technique, we can tell he's getting a little emotional about what he's writing. Could it be, could it be that at one time in his life, he might have been this way, so he was sympathetic with regard to this moralist? Sometimes you're most emphatic about something that's pretty personal. And I wonder, I don't have any proof for it, but it certainly fits with the flow. The reason Paul starts really getting down on these folks is because I think he was a moralist. You may say, a moralist? You've got to be kidding me. Paul was killing people. Paul was, Paul was a murderer. How could he have considered himself a moralist? I'll guarantee you he considered himself a moralist. He didn't consider himself a murderer. He thought, just like the Pharisees, he was doing God's work while he was murdering people. No, Paul would have never thought he fit in that first category. He would have thought he fit in the second category, or perhaps the third, or a combination of both, that he was saved because he was a very moral person, even though he was a murderer, which is a bit of a, a contradiction, wouldn't you think? But I think he thought he was in category number two. That's why he starts getting real emphatic and real worked up when he gets to this section. So he says, therefore, you are without excuse. Again, the second time he's done that. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So why are these folks guilty? Why do they condemn themselves? And actually, the, the Greek term here for judge that's, that's used second the first time the, the word is used, every you who passes judgment, that's uh, krino. When you get to judging yourself, that's kata krino. You, you see that there's still that krino in there, but it's got the word kata in front of it. It's a much stronger form of judgment. So Paul's saying every time you krino them, you're kata krinoing you. The weaker form, the stronger form. Now what is it that they're being condemned? How is it that they're condemning themselves? Let me tell you, they're not guilty because they are judgmental about the immoral person. Now, that's a sin in and of itself, but that's not why they're guilty. The next thing that Paul says is going to blow your mind. That is, that they are guilty because they do the same things. You see the difference? Some, some people would like to have you think, the reason they're guilty is because they judged that person who was sinful. And so then therefore they got reeled in and they became sinful themselves. Paul is not saying that at all. Oh, we would love to think that. But that's not Paul's point. So it's not the sin of judging that condemns them. 
So, uh, because uh, the point would be, if you could just keep from judging, then you wouldn't need a Savior. You, you see the point? Uh-uh. Paul's saying, you do the same things that they do. And that has got to be a wake-up call for anybody that's truly reading Paul's letter. Because they would never want to be in the category with all those immoral, degenerate perverts that he's already spoken of. He don't insult me by putting me in that category. But Paul says, hey, time out. You're doing the same things. So the moralist is not guilty because he or she judges that the murderer the adulterer, the arrogant, the greedy person, etc., needs justification. That's true. Murder is wrong. And for someone to say, you're a murderer and that's wrong, is just being objective. At least it should be being objective. These people do need justification. It's not biblical to ignore sin as if it never happened. That is not a biblical idea. But what Paul is saying is that they are condemning themselves not because they evaluated these things as being worthy of condemnation, but because they've done the same things. And here's where it gets confusing. How can you say, how, Paul, can you say that the moralist has done the same things as the immoralist? What can he mean? I mean, you ought to know whether or not you've murdered somebody, shouldn't you? Unless there's some weird things going on in your mind. I remember I had a dream one time. Woke up, and it was days before I could convince myself that I hadn't murdered somebody because it was all very, very vivid. I remember where I hid the body. Fortunately, <laughs> it was a dream. But, I mean, other aside from something like that or some mental problem, you know whether you've murdered somebody or not, don't you? So why would Paul say you've done the same thing? You know whether you've committed adultery or not, don't you? Or some of these other things as well. Well, the answer lies back into something that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember it? It's fairly classic, but sometimes we miss the importance of it. And that's why when we taught the Sermon on the Mount, I, I disagreed uh, fairly seriously, even with a person that I uh, revere, and that's Lewis Perry Chafer, on the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Chafer taught that it had absolutely no application for the church age at all. Well, those who came after him, and he caught a lot of criticism later on for that, and those who came after him, like Dwight Pentecost and John Wolvard and Elliot you know, Johnson and Bob Leitner and some of those people, Charles, Charles Robert, corrected that view and showed where there certainly was a lot of application. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes an incredible point to people who think that they're moral when they're not. So if you remember that, if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to overlay that to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and you'll get the whole point. Because remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? And remember the point of the Sermon on the Mount? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. He's saying those people are holding themselves out to be really righteous, but you've got to be more righteous than they are, or you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. That was his point. And then he went to point out that the Pharisees could walk along and say, I have never murdered anybody. I'm not bad like the immoralist. Same argument. I, I didn't commit adultery with people. So they felt like they had a righteousness in and of themselves that was going to get them to heaven. Remember what Jesus said? Oh, you hadn't murdered anybody? Have you been angry with someone lately? Have you murdered them in your mind? Then you're just as guilty before God as the person actually pulled the trigger. It doesn't mean you're going to be as guilty before man. Fortunately, there is no capital punishment for anger and hatred. Otherwise, 
every one of us just can stand in line. The Pharisee would also say, well, I would never commit adultery. And the Pharisee was probably telling the truth. Never would I do that. But Jesus says, wait a minute, have you looked upon a woman with lust? Then you're just as guilty. Now, you remember that concept from the Sermon on the Mount? Then overlay it to this, and you'll see what Paul's saying when he says, you've done the same things. Because Jesus taught that there was an external form of the law, and there's an internal aspect of the law. And just to obey the external form is not good enough. You have to obey the internal form. And what Jesus' point is in the Sermon on the Mount, nobody can do it. It can't be done. So if you want to try to keep the law for salvation, he says, there, you better keep the whole thing. In fact, if, if your hand's going to tempt you to sin, then cut that hand off. If your eyes are going to tempt you to have lust, better to poke your eyes out than to ever look upon a woman in lust because you're going to hell if that happens. That was his point. That's Paul's point, too. That's why he can say, you're without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, every one of you who crinos, for in that which you judge another, you kata crino yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And the reason it's a stronger word is because I'm acting like I'm real self-righteous, and I don't need a Savior quite as much as you do. That's why there's even a stronger condemnation. Although condemnation is condemnation. I mean, the, the best place in hell is not a very good place. But the, it's a stronger term that's used. You know, God doesn't play around. He doesn't play semantics. He doesn't play games. He's not interested in, in the way that we try to manipulate his system. It's either right or wrong as far as he's concerned. You're either saved or you're going to hell as far as he's concerned. And he wants you saved. Now, in verse 2, he says, and we know that. The judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. You see, Paul, you'll see this. He does this a lot in this epistle. He's going to make a case like a lawyer does. He's saying, you do the same things that they do, and we already have established, didn't we establish, Your Honor, that if you do those things, you're worthy of death, and that's a spiritual death, that's condemnation. And do you suppose, O oh man, verse 3, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, do the same things yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? See, Paul's got them right where he wants them. You do the same things. You've already agreed with me that the penalty for that's death, spiritual death. So what makes you think, because since you do the same things, that you're not guilty of spiritual death. You're not condemned to spiritual death. That's the beauty of what Paul has done here. Now, what about judging? Now, we've got just a couple minutes left, and I want you to turn in our, in our closing time to Matthew chapter 7, because this is a, it's a bit of a, an excursus, but not a huge one. I want to finish up with this. Because this whole idea of judging is, is one that is grossly misunderstood. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We'll finish up here. Obviously, in just a couple minutes, we won't cover it all in depth. But since we've covered it before, I just want to remind you of it. Uh, you know what verse, probably when you were growing up, was the verse that everybody knew, Christian and non-Christian? What was it? John 3.16. Yeah, that's, that's the verse that Christianity was known for. And thank God for it, because it was a beautiful explanation of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should never perish but have everlasting life. You know that that verse now, at best, is number three. You know what number one is? We're here, Matthew 1, 7. 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And, the way, and of course, they don't go two through five. But the way that's used is, how dare you, Christian... Condemn the activity of anyone else. 
You know what the second one is? Just, I mean, just out for grins, quickly. Anybody? I'll tell you what it is. It's, it is, um, God helps those who help themselves. You know where that is? It's not. In fact, in fact, it's difficult to figure out where that even started. There's a man named Algeron Sidney back in the 1600s that we can trace it as far back as that, and maybe the Aesop's fables, and I'm not sure when that was written. Ben Franklin, I know, made that fairly popular in our country in the 1700s, but no, it's not biblical. But that's a, a different note that we'll have to study on a, or have to consider in a different time. Listen to this. Don't, do not judge lest you be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Sound familiar? Paul just said the same thing. Okay. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye or the plank? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, does that passage teach that you should never be critical or judge? Say no. Actually, what the problem that we've had with that passage is we stop at verse 1. Because what Jesus is saying, you got a you got a plank in your eye. And of course, this is hyperbole. He used all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. That's why he's talking about cutting off your hand or poking your eyes out. He's saying, how can you see to help someone else out and take a speck of dust out there you when you got a big plank in your eye? Now it doesn't say don't take, don't attempt to help your brother out, but it's saying you better clear up your own stuff first before you go trying to clear up somebody else's. That's what this is teaching. Jesus taught his disciples not to be judgmental or censorious of one another in view of the high standards that he was clarifying. But he didn't mean that they should accept everyone and everything uncritically. Neither did he mean, obviously, that parents, church leaders, civil authorities, are wrong if they pass judgment on those under their care. There's times when you have to. If you're in leadership, you've got to judge the, the performance of another or the behavior of another. That's just part of the way things are. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He meant that his disciples should not do God's job of passing judgment for him when he hasn't authorized them to do so. And the reason that they can't is because no one but God knows all the facts that motivate people to do what they do. And Jesus is saying, if if you've got this log in your own eye, which I hope you would agree, kind of clouds your vision and your perspective on things, don't go around and trying to help, help God out in terms of, of a judge, being judgmental or corrective. That's what he's saying in verse 1. In verse 2, the thought here is, is similar to what he's spoken of in chapter 6, but the person who judges others very critically will experience a similar rigorous examination from God. Same thing that Paul just talked about in Romans 2. And there's a word play in Greek that suggests that might be a proverb. But, but in verses 3 through 5, the speck, the, the karphos, could be a speck of any foreign matter. But the log or the plank, the dokos, refers to a large piece of wood. And so this is, this is hyperbole. It's almost comedic. And can't you see that? Jesus is painting this picture almost like a cartoon that you read in the paper of a guy or a girl with a huge, just a huge stick poking out of their eye trying to do some delicate work with someone else's life. And so Jesus finally says, you're a hypocrite when you do that. Because you're acting like you don't need any help. 
But first, you take the log out of your own life. Clean up what you've got going on first before you start trying to clean up someone else's problem. And how much damage has been done by believers who are trying to clean up someone else's life when they got a lot of problems of their own. Again, there are certain times when we're supposed to, and there are plenty of passages that, you know, John 7, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 1, Philippians 2, 1 John 4, that, that tell us that we've got to be critical about certain things. You know, if a parent sees a child doing something that they ought not to do, it's your responsibility. If a pastor sees someone in his congregation that's way off the reservation, it's my responsibility to come and tell you about that. If you're, a, if you're an employer or a military officer, it's your responsibility to clear up some of those things. But make sure that you are indeed doing what you're supposed to be doing before you enter into that. So we, we, let's don't buy this postmodern interpretation that we can't be critical about anything. You better be critical within your own soul about what's right and what's wrong. And discerning, if you prefer the word discerning, then use that. But you better discern what's going on, otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. So that's, uh, that is Jesus' uh, explanation of the whole concept of judging. There's much more to it. But our time is up, so let me just remind you again. Jesus, uh, Paul says, Therefore, you are without excuse, the same way that the immoralist was. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that, in that which you pass judgment, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. I hope that, uh, I hope that you can go through this list and say, No, I have never been greedy, envy, full of, uh, full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful, malice. I haven't been a gossiper, a hater of God. Uh, insolent, but remember that there's an internal aspect to every one of those sins. Some of them actually are purely internal. And Paul says, who are you trying to kill? You look really cute. You look really lovely. But deep down, I know what's in your soul because it was what was in mine too. And God is not going to be fooled. So the moralist, while cast, casting judgment on the immoralist, condemns himself because he has also sinned. And all sin whether external or internal, brings condemnation. Heavenly Father, we are humbled. We're humbled with how wonderful your grace is. We thank you that though we needed a Savior just as much as anyone else, you thought enough of us to send your Son to die in our place. Father, help us to appreciate grace. Help us to live our lives in the light of your grace toward the end of glorifying you uh, with regard to how we conduct ourselves in front of a lost and dying world. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.